Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report, and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Jack Stone Truitt, Nikkei Asia's business and markets reporter, taking over for Waj today here in New York City. Today's episode, the assassination of Shinzo Abe, aftermath and impact. The death of Shinzo Abe, Japan's longest serving prime minister, has shaken the country and the world. Abe spent about three decades in politics and came to define Japanese politics in the eyes of much of the globe, particularly for his ambitious dreams of a more militarized Japan and his aggressive economic policies known as Abenomics. We'll be taking a look today at how those projects changed Japan. Abe did increase Japan's defense capabilities, even though he fell short of his ultimate goal of reforming the constitution. He created millions of new jobs, particularly for women, but had less success with increasing wages and reversing income inequality. Domestically, his divisiveness is just so embedded in his identity as a politician. There's this gap, this perception gap of Japan being peaceful on the outside. But if you go uh, one step deeper, there is so much division in Japan. Friday's incident really exposed that reality. Those are the voices of two of our guests today, Tobias Harris and Ken Moriyasu. They'll help us unpack Abe's complex life, accomplishments, and impact. We'll also hear from the macroeconomist Takuji Akubo, and together we'll look ahead to what's coming in the new post-Abe world. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. A reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Get three months of our award-winning coverage for just $9. To redeem, just click the link in the episode description. On July 8th, in the historic city of Nara, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated while giving a campaign speech for a different member of his party. The suspected shooter is a 41-year-old man who says he believes Abe had ties to the controversial Unification Church. The man had a grudge against that church. He alleged that his mother's donations to it bankrupted his family. At around 11.30 in the morning, a couple of minutes into Abe's speech, he walked behind the former prime minister and fired at least twice with a homemade gun. The event was particularly shocking because firearm laws are very strict in Japan and gun violence is incredibly rare. There have only been 14 firearm-related deaths in the country in the last eight years. Last year, there was only one. Tributes to Abe have poured in from across the world. Countries like India, Nepal, and Brazil even declared national days of mourning in his honor. Abe's funeral was held on Tuesday. Thousands of people lined the streets, clapping and bowing to pay him a final tribute as his hearse drove by. Current Prime Minister Fumio Kishida gave an emotional speech after the assassination, which he called unforgivable. It occurred just days before Japan's upper house election, and Kishida said he wouldn't allow the country's democracy to succumb to violence. I cannot forgive this dastardly and barbaric act which took place during an election, which is the basis of democracy. As the incumbent Prime Minister, I will not give in to violence and will defend democracy. The election took place as planned on the following Sunday, though it was more somber than usual. Judging by the results, people seem to have voted for Abe. 
His party, the LDP, won big, expanding their majority in the legislature. The LDP is the Liberal Democratic Party, a conservative party that's been in power in Japan for all but a few years since 1955. Many analysts believe that the LDP will be more divided without Abe's influence. The former PM came from a prominent political family and held enormous power in the party for decades, even before becoming the head of government for the first time in 2006. At that time, he was the youngest prime minister ever elected in Japan. He resigned just one year later, in 2007, due in part to the LDP's poor election performance and in part to health issues stemming from chronic ulcerative colitis. Abe returned to the prime minister's seat in 2012 and remained there for eight years before he had to step down in 2020 because of his illness yet again. But even after leaving office the last time, he's continued to be a party leader and an enormously influential figure. Today, we're looking at how exactly he changed Japan. We've brought in three excellent guests to walk us through the projects for which Abe is best known, his defense and economic policies, as well as a look back at his life. Here's AsiaStream correspondent Monica Hunter-Hart to kick things off. Thanks, Jack. Let's begin at the heart of what Abe was all about, what he considered his life's work, beefing up Japan's national security policy, transforming Japan from a largely pacifist country still living in the shadow of World War II to a formidable, militarized great power. Here to discuss that project is Ken Moriyasu, Nikkei Asia's diplomatic correspondent. Ken, welcome back to Asia Stream. Thank you for having me. Briefly, before we hone in on this defense policy question, which is your area of expertise, I just want to take a moment to reflect on the tragic events of last Friday when Abe was killed. Some analysts are calling it Japan's JFK moment. Can you explain a little bit about what that moment meant for Japan and for the Japanese people? Right. So it was very shocking that an assassination in broad daylight could happen. But there, but I think it's reflective of various, uh, several points. First, because gun violence is so rare in Japan, the security was very lax. The suspect shot twice. After the first shot, the security police were not jumping towards Abe to bring him down to the ground uh, to take cover. They were they were shocked, as Abe himself was. So so that kind of reflects how rare um, this incident was. But also, um, if you look at the motivation of the suspect, he says that uh, his mother was a a believer in a in a religious group, and she had donated all their money so much so that their family went bankrupt. So he wanted to take revenge on the religious organization, and he believed that Abe was involved in this religious group. And indeed, in Japanese social media, there are there is chatter um, of maybe Abe being uh, supportive of this um, religious group. There's no evidence, but there is so much um, extreme chatter on social media that is not reported uh, in mainstream media. And people don't talk about stuff like this uh, in public in Japan. But in the the dark world of the internet, uh, there's a lot of discussion. In America, of course, there's extremism, but people are very uh, open, in open debate. Uh, people, Republicans and Democrats, have heated exchanges in public. In Japan, people don't, really have heated exchanges. But once you go deep into the internet, into the social media, uh, it's very fierce. So there's this gap, this perception gap 
of Japan being peaceful on the outside, but if you go、uh, one step deeper,、uh, there is so much division in Japan. And I think that、uh, Friday's incident really exposed that reality. And I think there'll be a lot of legislation、um, to, to try to look into、uh, speech. You know, are you allowed to make accusations without any evidence? I think there'll be a lot of、um, discussion about what to do about that and how to、uh, limit hate speech and、um, this demonizing of、uh, politicians or famous figures.、Uh, it's very brutal. So I think there'll be efforts to try to. To fix that element of society.、Mm-hmm. And the hate speech question, of course, is relevant the world over. So now, Ken, let's get into it. If I understand Abe's political agenda correctly, most of what he did, including his famous economic reforms, ultimately stemmed from a desire to increase Japan's defense capabilities. As listeners may or may not know, Japan's constitution was adopted in 1947, just after World War II. It was drafted for the most part by the American occupiers, and it includes a famous provision, Article 9, that forbids Japan from having a military or waging war to resolve international disputes. Japan has interpreted that to mean it can keep an army for the purposes of self defense, but not offense. But Abe wanted more. So, what were his goals, and to what extent did he achieve them? So, Shinzo Abe and his grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, Thought that Article 9 limited Japan's ability to become a great power,、uh, to participate in global affairs, and it held back Japan as a second rate power. And when Abe became prime minister both times,、uh, but especially the second time, he tried to build up political capital to, cha- to be able to change the constitution. While he didn't succeed in changing the constitution, he did. Um, succeed in introducing comprehensive national security laws that expanded what the Japanese Self Defense Force could do. The Self Defense Force was limited specifically to the defense of Japan when Japan itself was attacked. The laws that Abe introduced in 2015 added a new criteria. And that was that if Japan's, survivability,、uh, if Japan's survival was at stake, then Japan can deploy self defense forces. So, what that means is because Amer-、uh, Japan's defense is 100% reliant on the US due to the Japan US Security Alliance, if the American troops were, for instance, attacked in the Taiwan Strait by the Chinese, that would Impact the survival of Japan because the Americans won't be able to come back and help defend Japan. Therefore, if the Americans were attacked in the Taiwan Straits, then Japan could deploy its self defense force to the Taiwan Straits because it's directly related to the survival of Japan. So that's what the law changes enabled the SDF, the self defense forces, to do. So it seems to me that there was a time when Abe's plans to overhaul Japan's national security policy were quite controversial. But they seem to be less so now. For example, Nikkei conducted a poll in May in which 91% of respondents said that Japan needs to be prepared for a scenario in which Beijing attacks Taiwan. How much of this shift in opinion is due to the public watching China's growing assertiveness, as well as the Russian invasion of Ukraine and other global aggressions, versus how much of it is due to the campaigning of Abe himself over multiple decades? I think global affairs has really impacted that, especially the Russian invasion into Ukraine, which made no sense to any Japanese person. 
and the Chinese position of defending Russia made absolutely no chance, uh, sense to any Japanese person. So uh, it, it became very difficult for the pro-China wing in Japan to maintain its stance. And if an opinion poll asked, um, do you think that Japan should be prepared for a Taiwan contingency? It's very natural for people to say yes. So I think that changed more than um, Abe's campaigning for, for that. That's actually a great segue to my next question. I'm hoping you can help explain to listeners how and why Abe has continued to loom so large on the world stage, even after stepping down from power. Many Japanese prime ministers uh, until Abe used Article 9 as an excuse not to share the burden of the alliance when the American side would ask Japan to do more uh, in defending the region, the Japanese prime ministers would often always say that because of Article 9, we are not allowed to have any army, military, uh, army, navy, or air force, and we are not allowed to use the self-defense force on anything except for defending our own soil. So there is no way that Japan could take part in any operation outside of Japanese waters. Uh, Shinzo Abe was very different, or he understood that uh, that kind of um, relationship with the U.S. was not sustainable. How do you expect the American forces, the young men and women uh, of America, to fight on behalf of, of such a country? If Japan was not willing to defend itself or or do its part, uh, how would that? Uh, how, how would the American president be able to sell that to his own or her own constituency, uh, to the families of the American soldiers? So Abe understood that Japan needed to take on a, a bigger responsibility. Abe also was a very strategic thinker. He understood that the worst case scenario for Japan would to be to have a three front war, a three front crisis. A, a crisis with China, a crisis with North Korea, and a crisis with Russia. Japan has traditionally tried to avoid having so many problems all at once, and Abe, true to that tradition, tried to reduce the threat with Russia by reaching out to Vladimir Putin. It was about reducing the tensions with Russia so that uh, Japan could focus on China and North Korea. And because during the Trump years, Trump was engaging with Kim Jong-un, and the threat from North Korea was much reduced, Abe therefore could focus on China, which was ideal. Speaking of North Korea, you and I had a conversation the other day right after Abe was shot. And you told me about an event in North Korea in 2002 that you called the moment Abe became the most popular politician in Japan. Abe, of course, went through many periods of controversy over the years, and his popularity dipped. But you were arguing that he overall maintained that spot as the most popular Japanese politician until his death. So tell us about that moment in 2002, 20 years ago. Right. So the prime minister at the time was Junichiro Koizumi, and Abe was the number three guy in the prime minister's office, the deputy chief cabinet secretary. Uh, he was a very young politician, um, and, but he accompanied uh, Prime Minister Koizumi to Pyongyang in North Korea, uh, the first time ever that a Japanese prime minister was visiting North Korea. At this meeting, the biggest issue was whether North Korea would admit to the kidnapping of Japanese citizens in the 1970s and 80s. And in the morning session, 
between Koizumi and Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-il made no mention uh, of the abductee issue. And then they broke for lunch. The Japanese side was uh, worried that they would be poisoned, so they didn't eat the lunch prepared by the North Koreans. They brought some rice balls, onigiri, from Japan, and they ate that. And in this um, lunch break, Abe uh, told Koizumi, if Kim Jong-il doesn't acknowledge the kidnapping and doesn't apologize it, uh, we should just kick the table and go home because there's no meaning whatsoever of this meeting. And of course, he knew that the North Koreans were tapping the room and they were listening to the conversation. And Koizumi said, all right, let's make that our stance. And they went back to the afternoon session and immediately at the beginning of the afternoon session, Kim Jong-il acknowledged that some elements of North Korea had kidnapped Japanese citizens in the 1970s and 80s, apologized for it and said that they would be returning some of the people who are still alive. And that was briefed to the media after the visit. And that made Abe a, a star, instantly made him a very popular politician. And that image of being strong, being decisive, being tough, stayed with him until his death. Because that was a risky move, right? I mean, that was not something that everyone agreed he should be saying. Right. So if they really did um, kick the table and leave, that would have been like Trump in Hanoi, the second meeting with Kim Jong-un he would have gone all the way to Hanoi to meet Kim Jong, but he got nothing in return. So there was a risk that this historic visit to Pyongyang would have been for nothing. But Abe understood that without being tough at that spot, there was no meaning of the visit anyway. So that was a very crucial moment in Japanese history. Can you say a little bit more about how Abe is perceived by the world today? So Abe, in uh, planning to prepare for the rise of China, thought that it was important to align Japan with the like-minded countries in the region, especially India, especially Australia, and hopefully South Korea. And that was the beginning of what is now known as the free and open Indo-Pacific. Abe uh, in a speech in India in 2007, talked about converging the two oceans, the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. And he was basically talking about how no longer the Atlantic Ocean was going to be the center of the world, but these two oceans, the Pacific and the Indi Indian Ocean, the Indo-Pacific was going to be the, the center of, the, of geopolitics. And he kind of paved the way um, for the world to move to this Indo-Pacific century. And uh, US President Donald Trump embraced Abe's idea and the Americans started to talk about a free and open Indo-Pacific. So he, Abe was a visionary in that, in that sense. And I think because his strategic logic was very clear, it was very easy for people in Washington um, to understand him and to prepare uh, US policy towards the Indo-Pacific, towards Japan, because Abe was so clear. And I think his successors, um, Prime Minister Suga, Prime Minister Kishida, have carried on this clear stance of um, wanting a free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, standing up to China and the rules-based international order. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm trying to imagine 
what a Japan without Abe would look like or even an Indo-Pacific, you know, what it would look like if Abe had never come to power. And I guess would that be something more like a much more divided region and a much more isolated Japan? No, no, no. There is another path. Uh, that path is much more closer to former Prime Minister Yasuo Fukuda, who ironically comes from the same faction as Prime Minister Abe. But Fukuda-san is much more about coexisting with China. Uh, and he has a point because most of Japanese companies have huge operations in China and make most of their profit in China. So Fukuda-san would say, um, if Japan continues to confront China, uh, a doubling of the defense budget would not be enough. Japan would need to triple, quadruple its defense budget, and it would always uh, have to live in tension, always have to um, hope uh, for, that the U.S. would be engaged in the region and that the moment a new American president that was not engaged or not as committed to the Indo-Pacific came into office, then Japan would have to go back to China, apologize and try to mend fences, which would be very ugly. So that's a different path. And Japan could have gone that, that path, um, embracing China, trying to uh, gradually um, convince China to come back to the international community, not side with Russia, uh, and be with the, the West in situations like this. Would that have worked? Uh, it's hard to say. One last question before I let you go. The party Abe was a part of, the LDP, expanded its majority in the upper house election on Sunday, meaning that Prime Minister Fumio Kishida will find it easier to enact his chosen agenda. Will Kishida take up Abe's old dream of reforming the constitution? How do you expect Japan's defense policy to change in a post-Abe world? I don't personally think that Kishida-san will um, move to change the constitution. Um, he has so much on his plate, um, starting from uh, inflation, the weak yen. You know, if we go down this path that we're going right now, um, Japan may indeed double its defense budget to 2% of GDP. But with the yen so weak, uh, because Japan buys most of its advanced weapons from America, if you convert that into dollars, uh, the purchasing power would be very weak. Japan would not be doubling its defense capabilities. So first of all, Japan, uh, Kishida-san has to um, rebuild Japan's economy, uh, try to bring the yen uh, back stronger um, and tame inflation and do something about the oil prices. There's so much to do before spending his political capital on changing the constitution. If in the future, uh, Kishida-san's successor is Sanae Takaichi, a very hawkish um, politician, she might indeed uh, try to change the constitution. But I don't think um, Japan will move there during the Kishida years. Ken Moriyasu, thanks for coming back on Asia Stream. Thank you very much. Now let's move away from policy for a few minutes to discuss Abe himself, his character and his life. To do that, we've brought in the Abe biographer, Tobias Harris. Tobias's book on the former prime minister came out in 2020. It's called The Iconoclast, Shinzo Abe and the New Japan. He is also a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he oversees the national security and international policy team's work on Asia. Tobias, welcome to Asia Stream. Hi, thanks for having me on. So much is being said these days about Abe the politician, but first, I want you to help us get to know Abe the man. What should listeners understand about who Abe was and what motivated him? 
Well, when talking about Abe, as many do, you start with his family. The fact that he is a third-generation lawmaker from a very prominent political family, a family that was sort of a counter-establishment. So you had uh, a post-war Japan, you have the the U.S.-introduced constitution, you have uh, the uh, Yoshida Doctrine promulgated by Prime Minister Yoshida, which basically says Japan is going to be lightly armed, allied to the United States, focus on economic development, that Japan would not actually be fully independent, that it would have U.S. troops, that it would that it would not um, be a great power really in its own right uh, under this under this arrangement. And Abe's maternal grandfather, uh, Kishinobusuke, was a wartime uh, economic planner, cabinet minister, wound up being imprisoned as a war criminal but not tried, and then at the end of the occupation re-entered politics and eventually became prime minister in 1957. And his passion was defeating the compromises that Yoshida introduced, defeating the post-war constitution, and removing the restrictions and allowing Japan to be a full-pledged great power again. So that that is really the driving philosophy of the family uh, where Abe came from. Now, his father, who also was a prominent LDP politician, was a long-serving uh, foreign minister under Prime Minister Nakasone in the 1980s. Uh, belonged to Kishi's faction, and I think ostensibly shared uh, Kishi's uh, political aims, but never really gave as much sign of being committed to this. And so in some ways, there's a sense of of these goals skipping a generation that, you know, Abe enters politics in the early 1990s and is kind of inventing himself as a politician and embraces and the mission that his grandfather had left unfinished. But that's where you have to start. You have to start as Abe is this kind of uh, heir to the what was called at the time the anti-mainstream part of the LDP. Can you take us through some of the highlights of his career? What were the most important things he accomplished? So I think you have to really look at the whole arc of his career and that he enters the diet in 1993. His father had died two years before and he basically inherited his seat. And Abe is one of a handful at that time of young conservative LDP members who are looking at the landscape of the post-Cold War world. Um, you know, and, and it's and it's, so it's the end of the Cold War. You have uh, the bursting of Japan's economic bubble. You have a series of corruption scandals that implicated basically the entire top leadership um, of the LDP. And the LDP loses power, of course, for the first time in 1993. So Abe actually begins his career as an opposition lawmaker. So, you know, a number of, of his father's allies kind of helped him along. He um, earned some posts in the LDP hierarchy. Um uh, much faster than um, junior politicians normally would. And so he you know, was sort of checking the boxes that he needed to do to climb up the ladder. Um, he was very involved in uh, right-wing parliamentarians groups you know, related to textbooks, related to education, um, and eventually related to foreign policy. And so he, he increasingly focused on foreign policy as a way he was going to make his mark and on national security as a way he was going to make his mark. Right. So to what extent did he succeed in that? in this project that was so important to his family and to that young, ambitious LDP faction, basically, of helping Japan to sort of regain its place in the sun. Does Abe leave behind a changed Japan? Well, so that was so so with that as backdrop, uh, as he entered positions of, of greater authority, so becoming prime minister first in 2006 and, and 2012, I mean, it was very clear that that was what he wanted to do. And, and it actually, um, he certainly, I think, in broad strokes, and certainly when you compare to what Japan looked like in 1993, uh, it is very much a changed 
Japan. I mean, it's a Japan where uh, what Abe and, and his uh, compatriots wanted to do was make a stronger state led by uh, a more powerful prime minister, more you know, top-down government, the proper national security establishment that would be able to articulate policy, execute policy, uh, respond to crises. And you know, by and large, they did succeed in the, certainly in that aspect. You know, if you compare back to you know the early '90s when you know the bureaucracy had you know different parts of the bureaucracy could could impose their will or uh, various you know, factions of the LDP or policy groups in the LDP. That that is no longer the case. You know, the, I mean, on the whole, the prime minister has the power to set the direction of policy, to control the bureaucracy, to control the ruling party. And I mean, it, it's just a it's just a completely different system. And he wasn't the only one pushing for these reforms and wasn't the only one who carried them out. I mean, there were a number of other uh, steps along the way, but he certainly uh, was pushing in this direction. And certainly in the national security side, you know, between um, elevating the, the defense agency to a full ministry in 2007 as prime minister, creating the national security secretariat in 2013, national security st- strategy as part of that process. I mean, just a number of steps along the way. Um, you know, he was both an agent of that and a beneficiary of that process. Um, and it really shaped uh, Japan going forward. In the wake of a horrific event like this, the eulogizing tends to take on a flattering, at times even sugarcoating tone. And it's true that Abe was very popular, but we shouldn't ignore that he was also a controversial and polarizing figure. So tell us about that. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it comes down to what he wanted to do. I mean, he had, you know, an ambitious, ambitious vision to completely remake the country. And I mean, it's only natural that you have a vision like that. You're, you know, that one is very different um, than what came before. I mean, you know, that that you know, Cold War Japan was, you know, the the political system. You know, yes, the LDP dominated, but it was a much more bottom up, consensual system. Um, it, you know, and, and certainly um, much more inclined towards. Uh, Civilian leadership in the world, less interested in military power, um, by you know by taking aim at all of those features of post-war Japan. I mean, Abe was, I mean, was clearly intentionally courting controversy. You know, in his book, he talks. You know, he divides the world into politicians who fight and politicians who don't. And you know, he saw himself as a politician who was fighting for what he believed was right, and was not afraid of criticism. He wanted to engage with his critics. He wanted. I mean, didn't mean he was a wasn't a happy warrior necessarily. I mean, I think he was someone who, you know, took things you know very seriously and was not, um, you know, did did not suffer those who thought differently um, easily. So, I mean, you, you again, you completely understand why um, why he was so divisive. Why you know people who disagreed with him um, really disagreed with him and felt you know that that it became personal for everyone involved. You know, because this was you know the stakes were high. Um, and the combatants, everyone believed that their vision was right. And, um, but, but ultimately I think one of the things that I learned from, you know, from studying him and and writing about him, um, it's just, I mean, it's just a certain amount of respect for that approach, you know, that, um, you know, ultimately, um, you know, politics like being, you know, there's, there's something to be said for saying, this is what I want. Um, and I'm going to use whatever, uh, I can to get it done. And, you know, I'm going to, you know, if I have the power to do it, I'm going to try. And and at a personal level, too, um, 
his personal story, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the story of, of someone who, you know, a, a political, you know, political prince who, you know, sort of had his way to the top smooth and he became prime minister, you know, the youngest post-war prime minister in 2006 and then completely failed. Um, and basically that, you know, basically experienced failure for the first time in his life at that point, um, in, in a very visible, very embarrassing way when, you know, some of the details about his, his medical condition came out. Um, but to somehow recover from that and stay in politics and, you know, think about what went wrong. I mean, he, he, I mean, there's been a lot of accounts of how he basically, uh, filled notebook after notebook with reflections on, on what went wrong during, during his government, you know, and, and, you know, talking with, you know, his, his colleagues from then and, and really reflecting on it and then reinventing himself in some ways, you know, becoming someone who is going to, you know, focus on the economy in addition to all the other stuff, um, and finding his way back to power. I, I mean, agree with him or not. I mean, there's, there's something just very compelling at a personal level about that kind of story. One final question, also on this theme of reputation. The assassination of a powerful figure often has a glorifying effect on their image. I'm thinking of, for example, people like the Kennedys, JFK and Bobby Kennedy in the United States, who are often remembered in an idealized light. Their legacies are dominated by a mourning of their aborted potential. I know this is a bit speculative, but I'm curious how you think this assassination will shape how Abe is remembered in Japan. Well, it's complicated because I think certainly... um it's going to influence how he's remembered outside of Japan and the kind of tributes that we've seen from world leaders, business leaders, um, you know, really operate the statesman is I think going to be firmly embedded in people's consciousness. And I mean, and that, and that is part of who he was. I mean, certainly, um, you know, and as prime minister, I mean, he stands out for his, you know, globe spanning diplomatic vision and his willingness to really engage in personal diplomacy and travel the world. I mean, um, and all of that stands out, um, and, and rightly deserves to be remembered. I mean, he was visible globally in a way that you know no no Japanese leader who came before um, was. Um, I think it's more complicated domestically um, because I think domestically his divisiveness is just so embedded in his identity as a politician. You know, the fact that people who didn't like him felt so strongly in their dislike that people who liked him, who supported him, felt so strongly, you know, that he was their, the champion of, of what they wanted for Japan. And of course, you know, the reality is he left, you know, some very big decisions for his successors uh, to make and how, you know, how they make those decisions, um, you know, could retroactively affect his legacy as well. I mean, he's, um, you know, we'll, we'll, so he will continue, I think, um, to influence the choices available to his successors, um, to shape, you know, I mean, he certainly shaped what the LDP um, has become, and, and all of that will continue. But I, I, I don't think there's going to be a, a sepia-toned uh, remembrance of him. You know, that I, I think it'll be hard to separate him out from the fact that he he welcomed political division, he sought political division, and he sought to win uh, over his over his rivals. And, and that's just unmistakable, an unmistakable part of, of his political identity. Tobias Harris, thank you for coming on Asia Stream. Thank you so much. Thanks to Monica Hunter-Hart, Ken Moriasu, and Tobias Harris. Now let's move on to the second great pillar of Shinzo Abe's time in office, his economic policies, which would be dubbed Abenomics. Like those who came before him, 
Abe's economic mandate was to kickstart a Japanese economy that had continued to grow at a snail's pace since the so-called lost decade of the 1990s. Abe's approach consisted of what were called three arrows. First, loose monetary policy with low interest rates and quantitative easing to increase the money supply. Second, fiscal stimulus to pump the sluggish economy. And finally, structural reforms meant to make Japan more competitive. Things like cutting corporate taxes and trying to get rid of some of Japan's bureaucratic red tape, but also efforts to get more women to participate in the workforce. Most analysts agree that Abenomics were a mixed bag, and much of the GDP growth or reining in of government spending that was achieved was wiped out by the pandemic. Today, the Japanese yen is falling to levels not seen in decades as the country joins the rest of the world in fighting inflation. Like his predecessor, Prime Minister Kishida has campaigned on kickstarting the economy. Not with Kishidanomics, but under a plan he's called New Capitalism, seeking to reduce social disparities and grow the economy in new areas like decarbonization or innovative startups. I spoke with Takuji Ukubo, a macroeconomist and managing director for Japan Macro Advisors in Tokyo, about Abe's economic legacy and more. Takuji Ukubo, thank you so much for joining Asia's stream. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So first and foremost, how would you rate the success of the three arrows of Abenomics? Well, in terms of uh, monetary expansion, well, I, I must give a uh, 100% mark in a sense that uh, I would say Prime Minister Abe probably encouraged the Bank of Japan to do too much of monetary expansion, expe- uh, um, you know, I would say excessive monetary easing. So on that, Front, yes, uh, Prime Minister Abe did encourage monetary easing and uh, he did achieve that goal. Uh, on the second point regarding fiscal spending, well, he did, well, he and Japanese government did increase fiscal spending at the very beginning. But then, as you know, Japanese public finance is in dire state and the uh, Ministry of Finance quickly. Uh, changed uh, the direction and public spending as a percentage of Japanese GDP did fall uh, during Abe's uh, tenure until uh, COVID-19 crisis hit. So in that sense, he didn't really increase fiscal spending. So, and on the third part, the regulations or structural reforms, he didn't really try any hard structural reforms such as uh, labor markets. But uh, Prime Minister Abe, he did uh, accomplish a few, I would say mid-sized structural reform, but he left hard reforms such as pension reforms, labor market reforms untouched. So I can't really give, uh, you know, Prime Minister Abe any high mark for his uh, regulatory or structural reform areas. And beyond Abenomics, there were also so-called womanomics, meant to promote women's economic empowerment, primarily via greater participation in the workforce. However, just this week, Japan was ranked 116th, that's dead last among G7 nations, in the World Economic Forum's annual gender gap report. So how do you view the success of womanomics in hindsight? It was not successful uh, in the end. Um, So I, I wouldn't deny that uh, gender equality improved in Japan in an absolute sense uh, under Prime Minister Abe's watch. And then he did promote 
uh, gender equality policy uh, personally. However, we need to think about, you know, a relative uh, sense, uh, you know, how Japan compares to its global peers. So back in 2010, Japan's ranking was in 90s, I believe it was uh, number 94. And as the years goes on, Japan's ranking just kept falling uh, in the global ranking. So in that relative sense, uh, Japan did not succeed in improving uh, gender equality relative to its global peers. And in that sense, womanomics by Prime Minister Abe was a good slogan, good public relationship efforts, but that did not achieve its, uh, its goals. As far as not achieving some of his primary economic goals, particularly those major structural forms you alluded to, was it a case of prioritizing his security agenda over and perhaps at the cost of his economic agenda? Yeah, that's exactly right. He did achieve some political, politically difficult agenda, but that, it was just not the economic. It was more in the security area. Earlier, you said that perhaps there was too much monetary easing under Abe. That's lowering the interest rate or increasing the money supply. What did you mean by that? So we're talking about uh, his fault in pushing Bank of Japan too hard so that the Japanese Central Bank has now overextended balance sheet. There's not much room for Bank of Japan to lower interest rates anymore. So I think that is a problem in a sense that the Bank of Japan doesn't have a lot of uh, policy options when the next crisis hits. So I would say this kind of constraining future monetary policy uh, options was one negative legacy Prime Minister Abe has left behind. What would you say is the most positive economic legacy that Abe leaves behind? Okay, so one area I do give uh, some you know, positive marks is in a corporate governance area. So during Prime Minister Abe's watch, uh, Japanese government passed a few significant uh, corporate regulatory reforms. Uh, It's called a stewardship codes in Japan. So, uh, uh, and it applies to listed uh, companies of uh, Tokyo Stock Exchanges. And uh, there's also a guideline. So there were, um, you know, a number of of, uh, details, uh, which you could say uh, should improve Japanese corporate governance, you know, so, for example, now Japanese uh, board of directors need to include at least one third of uh, non-executive board members. So that's uh, that's improvement. And I think uh, uh, Japanese uh, asset managers need to make sure they can explain to their investors that, that they are monitoring, uh, actively monitoring corporate governance of uh, companies they invest in. So so through these measures, I would say Japanese corporate governance has improved significantly over the last 10 years. And uh, Japanese uh, companies are definitely paying more dividends uh, to their equity holders. So that's there is a significant improvement there. In terms of our risk-taking, Japanese company remain uh, risk-averse despite the corporate governance efforts. So in that sense, we haven't really seen kind of a 
you know, quantitative evidence of the improvement, but uh, perhaps uh, this takes time and uh, maybe we'll see more benefits uh, in the future. Now, speaking of the future, the LDP just won a big victory in the upper house elections this week, and that could give Prime Minister Kishida what he needs to enact some of his biggest policy goals. And the major one is his own economic agenda he campaigned on, which he calls new capitalism. What do you make of Kishida's economic agenda compared to Abenomics, as he is once again a prime minister tasked with invigorating a sluggish Japanese economy? So Mr. Kishida is uh, more uh, toward liberal half of the uh, ruling party, whereas Prime Minister Abe was more toward the uh, you know, more conservative right-wing uh, part of the uh, ruling party. So uh, in that sense, uh, I, w- I, I, I am hopeful that uh, Prime Minister Kishida focus more or more liberal economic policy rather than uh, security area. And now the uh, ruling coalition has a very strong hold on the parliament. So Prime Minister Kishida does have a significant room to tackle uh, hard economic uh, issues. So I do hope uh, Prime Minister Kishida will execute uh, you know, hard uh, structural reforms, such as I mentioned, labor market reform, pension reform. I think these two are the big issues which are weighing on Japanese populations as well as uh, companies, you know, the future insecurity. Having said that, um, since uh, Prime Minister Kishida took on the current job, his policy achievement hasn't been great. So he does talk about new capitalism, but so far, I would say there is actually even a consensus among uh, critics that uh, it's, uh, there's no substance in it. So one could defend Prime Minister Kishida, well, he was just uh, waiting for his chances. You know, he, need to, he needs to win election first, and then uh, perhaps uh, he can uh, reveal his real substantial agenda. So maybe that's the case. But so far, his uh, new capitalism slogan remains just a slogan, and there's no substance. Takuji Akubo is the Managing Director for Japan Macro Advisors. Takuji, thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. The man suspected of shooting Abe is currently in custody. Police say he has admitted to killing the former prime minister, but Japan is still a long way from justice. Meanwhile, the country is still in mourning. On Thursday, Prime Minister Kishida announced that Japan will hold a state funeral for Abe this fall. That's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for more in-depth coverage of the late Shinzo Abe and all things related to Asia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave us a review, hopefully a five-star rating. And a last reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. To get the discount, click the link in the episode description. This episode was produced by Monica Hunter-Hart. I'm your host, Jack Stone Truitt. We'll stream again in two weeks. Till then, good luck getting through this heat wave. 
If you need to cool off, you can always return to us for a big helping of ice stream.